I had this fantasy today, which is really not such an unusual fantasy, uh, because I function in this role quite a lot. But I had the fantasy of giving the talk in the same way that you are experiencing the unfolding of your practice, which means, at least when I was thinking about it, it means you have no idea what will happen next. You are, uh, you are practicing welcoming whatever it is that presents itself and developing a certain kind of trust that you moment to moment, that you have the capacity to meet with, work with, hopefully learn to love and accept and respond skillfully to whatever it is that comes. And I am hoping that I can do the same tonight. (laughs) And I don't know, but I also have a lot of confidence and faith in the practice. faith in the teachings, um, and I have a little bit of experience, so that also helps. But what I was also joyfully noodling about this afternoon, and I just share my thoughts with you, was the, uh, just the desire that I had to somehow continue the thread of what began in the Uh, first evening and then the first talk uh, that James gave and and then how Sharda beautifully piggybacked on what James was doing and brought us into a a more direct experience of uh, continuing of what James was presenting. And I thought that then I would launch into what I think may be just a an added fleshing out of some of where uh, the teachings go and where our practice goes as we unfold. And when I thought about what James shared, it was, the, it was that infectious, at least I get this, the infectious, um, uh, the infectious um, confidence in the power of mindful attention to to be able to learn to meet our experience with with kind and interested and relaxed attention, which is the in some ways the replacing of the habitual way of meeting our experience with with uh, desire, aversion, um, doubt, um, a sense of um, a sense of meeting our experience through the lens of what does it mean about my future. Mindfulness invites us to step out of that, that state of becoming, of state of always associating what we're doing with what's next uh, and transforms it to a, a recognition that when we are in some ways mindful, we have already arrived at the, you could say the mountaintop. There's really no higher mountain to climb than that moment that you are meeting your experience with kind and interested and relaxed attention, to use James's phrase. Uh, 
And the way he shared the teachings, the modeling of the the study that he alluded to, the teachings of Dogen, where he said, to study the Buddha Dharma is to study the self. And the practice of mindfulness, the bringing of this lucid awareness with clear comprehension to our experience is the, is the means by which we study the self. And it's the exact means that the Buddha used to study himself. And so when I was thinking about what James was saying, to study the Buddha Dharma is to study the self, and this, this is the teachings of Dogen, to study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be intimate with all things. How did the Buddha come to that intimacy with all things? How did he study the self? He practiced mindful attention. He first became mindful of the reality of um, sickness. He saw somebody his own age who was quite ill. He saw that with clear eyes for, for once. You know, usually we deceive ourselves into thinking it might not happen to us. He saw someone who was quite ill. He saw someone who was quite old. And he saw a corpse with clear eyes, he studied what we often associate ourselves with, which is our strongest, the deepest identification that we have, where we most tether our identity is to the body. So much of our view about ourselves is hooked to my age, my health, my life. That's essentially the, probably the main thrust of the narrative that flows through our mind, is the I am the body narrative. It's the deepest attachment. But it's interesting, when he saw, when he studied what we usually associate ourselves with, the body, and he saw with such clarity sickness, aging, death, it is said in that moment the pride or identity with health vanished. Or, the, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll skip around. The pride in health vanished because he saw to associate your identity with health is not ex- exactly a reliable refuge. It's, it's a source of insecurity. The pride identity with youth evaporated. And he saw that, that identifying with youth in the face of having our identity built around youth. And you know that this, if there is anything systemic in our culture, it's the cult of youth. It's how everyone is, not everyone, but many are so preoccupied with staying young. And it's so much of our pride and our identity and our pursuit is to, you know, one way of talking about it is run from the grim reaper. Run from the reality of death. And so we, we spend a lot of time and energy and money on beautification. 
And this is a function, this is, this is the, one of the ways that our pride in youth, our identity built around youth and clinging to youth um, causes us a lot of stress. It keeps us in a state of running. Avoiding aging keeps us in a state of running. And this state of running, which is often the, um, the pursuit that is going on in our mind, running from this present moment away from, away from right now to, uh, to somehow figuring out how we will um, prevent sickness, old age, and death. So it's also true that when he studied the self in terms of this life, as we usually identify ourselves, it's at that moment that he saw a corpse, his, his identity with life even melted away. It's also been described in the teachings that, that at that moment that he saw sickness, aging, and dying, really saw it with, the, with mindful eyes, with clarity. Instead of the pride in youth, the pride in health, and the pride in life, it's sometimes described as the enchantment with youth, the enchantment with health, the enchantment with life. It melted away. But then that's one that turned him toward the Dharma. That's why I think I mentioned last night that impermanence was the Buddha's guru. You could say that death was the Buddha's guru. So we chant every day in some form or another or remember every day that our our identity connected to things that are in a state of flux is a source of insecurity. And innocently, when we are insecure, we try to make ourselves secure. And the ways that we try to make ourselves secure tend to actually increase our insecurity. And I'll speak a little bit more about that as we go along tonight. So not only did the Buddha study the self through this more macro recognition of the reality of sickness and old age and death, when no one else was able to uh, guide him anymore beyond just states of, of of concentration and unification of mind and wonderful, uh, sometimes described as supramundane states, which he experienced in his meditation, he saw that even those meditative states, the most beautiful states of, of meditation, were also not anything that he could really hook his identity around. Because eventually, even the most blissful experience faded away as helpful as they are, as onward leading as they are for our practice, how inspiring they are and how much they actually heal us in a certain way. The more we come into the sense of unification of mind and body, which you've been tasting a little bit more, you can actually feel the room uh, more settled after a few days. And, And I don't know whether I was projecting this or not, but I saw someone walking down the road very mindfully and the, it seemed like that person's attention was just absolutely inhabiting their steps. And it, it was so moving to me that I actually started to tear. Because you know, I'll, I'll digress a little bit now. I, 
I started to reflect, life is hard enough as it is, just dealing with everything that we have to deal with, all the various uncertainties. And yet I knew in that moment that that person's mind and body together, unified, located in real time, what we sometimes call the present moment, even though there is really no such thing. But that, that person engaged in reality, I could tell that they were not adding to the stress of our life by adding to it Maybe they could have been lost in thought, but it seemed like they were really connected. (laughs) But but at least my view was, and I may be wrong, but they were not adding to it the, the internal narrative that gets added to, that compounds the stress of our life, that something's wrong, something's wrong with me, I can't be happy here, something has to change in order for me to find relief. That person in that moment was not constructing an an identity that associated happiness with, with how things turn out, with what's next, which keeps us in a fairly constant state of suspended happiness, of tension, of waiting, of hoping, expecting. Every moment that we step out of, we untangle that little stream of distress which is often, our narrative is often uh, constructing a version of ourselves besides one that's lacking. More, and more accurately, I would say, at least what I've seen in my own mind, is it's basically constructing again and again and again a problem to be solved. And so it's very easy to basically think of yourself as a problem to be solved. Now, I find it so useful in the moments that I'm simply connecting with the, the step that I'm taking, here with you in the room, not knowing what will happen next or what happened before, before I can give rise to a, a memory about myself or remind myself that there is some kind of flaw here or that needs to be fixed. Before I do that, when I'm just here with you and you're just here with me, We're not adding any stress to this life. We're reducing it. And it's very difficult on present evidence to find anything about us that is lacking, that is insufficient. Anything about us that has to be solved we come into that beautiful sense that Sharda pointed to last night of a, the, of a well-being or a peace or a wakefulness that doesn't seem to be dependent on what's showing up here. Like anything can be noticed. Anything, everything, you're all here, I'm here, whatever we're feeling, it's all inclusive. But it doesn't necessarily mean something about me free of that, that narrative of, of me and mine, of myself. That version of ourselves that plays through our mind again and again and again, that in some way approximates elements of our lives. 
So much of our identity is associated with our conditioning, our, our family conditioning, our cultural conditioning, our race, our class, our gender, uh, all the different, the various identities that are, that are a part of our life. And they're a part of, uh, and that narrative that flows through our mind, that version of ourselves, it, um, in some ways, compared to the version, the experience of yourself in real time, right here, what we actually experience when we are practicing mindfulness, that version of yourself in real time is a version of somebody that doesn't exist. It's a virtual version. We come to that version very innocently and it's, our stories are interesting and great and they need to be loved and respected and and all the ways that we've created identity need to be acknowledged because a lot of it has been because of oppression. A lot of it, lot of it has, become, has been because of trauma and wounding. We've formed this, this narrative. But to the degree that we live in that version of ourselves, we actually deprive ourselves of a, of a direct experience of ourselves that is not a problem to be solved. That is, as Sharda was intimating last night, always already inclusive and free. The very awareness, you could say, or consciousness through which you are perceiving your, your most natural state is not somebody, your most natural state is, in real time, is awake, aware. So just check that out for a moment. After your last thought has passed of yourself, as beautiful and as wonderful, as natural as it is for us to have thoughts and stories, but for a moment, just sense what you're direct experiences after your last thought has stopped and before the next one comes. Is there not, without trying at all, a kind of vivid clarity? Uh, Maybe somebody tell me, what is it that you notice after your last thought has ceased and before the next one has come. What is your experience of yourself, please? It's just, uh, peaceful. Peaceful. Anybody else? Wide open. Wide open. I heard someone over here. What? Space. Space. Anybody over here? Empty. Empty. Not so easy to put into words, is it? But I don't hear in your experience of yourself on present evidence, I don't hear the story of lack. I don't hear anything missing. 
As Hakuin Zenji says, this very body, the Buddha, this very place, the lotus land. How sad that people ignore the near and search for truth afar. Walking on paths of ignorance, we wander. Or as uh, Kabir says, oh, how I laugh when I hear that the fish in the water is thirsty. You don't understand that what's most alive lives inside your own house. And so you wander from one holy city to the next with a confused look. That's why when Sharda just, I was just celebrating last night, Sharda was pointing to this Tibetan teaching where she says, where she referred to, I forgot the person, but it's, it's from the Tibetan teaching. It's, it's a teaching called the Four Faults. Why we don't recognize that you are the Buddha, you are awake, you are intrinsically um, open, empty, peaceful. And it, that part of you, that nature of you is, is uncreated, it's unconditioned. It only becomes obscured by our constant, innocent though, preoccupation with this version of ourselves that plays through our mind, the view of ourself of, of lack that the Buddha called Sakaya Ditti, self-view. And of course, once I have a view of myself that's connected to lack or a problem that needs to be solved, then I'm also going to think that my relief, my sense of well-being, as Sharda mentioned so beautifully last night, will depend on conditions changing. I will somehow have to be, I will have to reach the end of the rainbow, when I can finally say, ah, I found what I was looking for. I found home. I'm okay now. But our practice and what the Buddha realized is that this tendency to go out of ourselves in search, to try to go to find relief, actually prevents us from seeing it. That's why this one teacher, Gendon Rinpoche, says, don't go into the tangled jungle looking for the great awakened elephant who's already resting quietly at home in front of your own fireplace. He says, there's nothing to do, nothing to want, nowhere to go. Happiness can't be found through through going, through effort and willpower, but it's already present in open relaxation, letting go. So I was taken with, the, with knowing that that person, that woman who was just putting one foot in front of the other, placing her mind in her body, I knew that in that moment, that identity that is often being constructed that's associating happiness with the destination, 
was not occurring and that person was actually, whether they knew it or not, they were arriving at the destination in each step. As one of my favorite teachers, Nisargadot, says, nothing can make you happier than you are fundamentally. All search for happiness is misery and leads to more misery. The only happiness worth that name is the happiness of being conscious, being awake. So I'm totally gratified that you have, take, have you taken this time, and it's hard to go against the stream of everything in us that wants to run from silence, run from illness, run from aging, run from death. And the willingness for you to die to that story in your mind, die into the present, to die before you're dead. I don't mean to be morbid. It's not the morbid sense. It's, it's like letting, letting, it all, letting that whole drama of going stop now. You know, the Buddha tells some great stories and I think James alluded to the, the passage that he uttered at the end of this little uh, dialogue that he had with a person named Rohitasa who supposedly, and who knows whether these stories are, should be taken literally or uh, metaphorically, poetically, but Rohitasa came to the Buddha and said, in, in a previous lifetime, I was a celestial being, I was a deva. And, I, and devas often have special powers. They, have, they can do things that you and I do in a little bit more gross way, but <laughs> Rohitasa could walk incredibly fast. And he could walk so fast that it said that an archer could shoot an arrow and he could reach the, the whatever they call the the target, <laughs> thank you, the target before the arrow did. And he got a bright idea because he was you know, he had, was very identified with his speed and his specialness and his special power. And yet he had, like all of us, a kind of yearning to find the end of, of the world, the end of this, this endless cycle of, of existence that just keeps going on and on, this endless search for uh, a happiness that never seems to arrive uh, in the future. And of course, it, it's because the because time is always now and we're always looking for it you know, in some imagined future. But anyways, he said he, he then decided to walk to the end of the cosmos, the end of the world, and maybe he could find what he was looking for by going. And after a hundred years, he, he died. <laughs> he didn't find what he was looking for. So then he was reborn again as Rohitasa and he came to the Buddha and he said, you know, in such and such a life, I was this deva and I tried to walk to the end of the cosmos, to the end of the world, to the end of all of this becoming, tried to wear it out, and, and I just died. Is it possible to come to the end of the cosmos, the end of the world by going? 
And the Buddha said, no. But then he said, only those who come to the end of the world become liberated. But he didn't leave him hanging. He said at that, at that point, he said, it's within this fathom-long body lies the world or lies the cosmos, lies the, the world that we keep creating and spinning out with its senses and perceptions and our reactions. It's within this body that we find the world. It's within this body, this fathom-long body, where we find the cause of the world, what actually triggers this, these worlds that we keep creating and going in our mind, how we keep constructing ourselves as someone who has come from the past, is passing through here, on our way to the future where we finally get it, and we just keep doing that again and again, and over and over, we think we'll come to the end of the world, and what we're missing is the third thing he said. It's within this fathom-long body with its senses and perceptions lies the end of the world. And it's within this fathom-long body with its senses and perceptions lies the path leading to the end of the world. So I want to back up a little bit to, to James, uh, his, the, the Dogen passage where he said to study the Buddha Dharma is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. Forget the self is to be intimate with all things. I have a few, few ways that I'd like to go with that. Just when I said the word intimate with all things, isn't it interesting when we when we do, for a moment, come into a sense of immediacy, whether it's when you're outside with the trees and you're just in the bare experience of seeing, or you're here right now after your last thought has stopped and before the next one comes, and we're just here together, not, not thinking about ourselves, but just being awake, at least for me, when I'm here with you, you and you're here with me, I don't know anything um, more intimate. Because I don't, I can't find, I'm, I can't find in my mind where there's a separation between us. So we're studying ourselves and then we're forgetting ourselves for a moment. And perhaps... Maybe it's just me, but I feel very intimate with you. It's kind of wild. And it's really easy to miss how intimate it is to be together, free momentarily, of our preoccupations. Free of that version of ourselves of lack. There's this kind of, it's like a little field of wholeness, of intimacy that we don't necessarily create. It's what's here when our, 
when our senses are clear, when our mind is free of our preoccupations. As a teacher, same teacher in Nisargadot who I quoted before, he says, when, when our minds are free of their preoccupations, even momentarily, they become quiet. And if you don't disturb that quiet and you stay in it, you'll see that it's permeated with light and love that, you've, um, that maybe you've never sensed before. He says the, the unruly mind, though, will rise again and obliterate that, that, <laughs> that whole vision. <laughs> but it's bound to return if the effort is sustained until grasping for this obsession with what's next ends and life becomes supremely concentrated in the present, intimate. And hopefully you're getting a sense after a few days of sinking more deeply into, into reality, into, um, into real time. Enough so that perhaps in a few more moments the present real time is becoming more compelling and your desire to be elsewhere is, is falling away a little bit. At least I sense that that might be happening. Maybe I'm wrong. The beauty of practice is we can, we can start to get used to being present and, we can, and that can even include, as Sharda was speaking about that, it's inclusive enough to even notice what it's like to just notice what it's like to want to be elsewhere. And instead of acting from that place of wanting to be elsewhere, we relate to it as just the habit of mind that is wanting what I don't have or restless or bored or whatever it is. Instead of making that real and acting out of that, we notice that. We include it in our practice. Then we don't have to necessarily leave present time to find relief. We find it in the knowing of whatever it is that we're experiencing. So getting back to to study the Buddha dharmas, to study the self. When the Buddha, after the Buddha saw with clear eyes the sickness, aging and dying, and the pride and and identity with youth and health and life evaporated, he tried to find that freedom through meditative states and then he saw that they they also had a shelf life and they were ultimately subsumed in the, in the basic unsatisfactoriness of everything in life. Unsatisfactory in the sense that it's not reliable. It can't give you lasting satisfaction. And so it's the, at that point that there was no one else to teach him other, you know, beyond just states of bliss and wonder and all of that. He saw that wasn't really liberation. That was, it was onward leading. It was helpful. It was inspiring. But it, it wasn't liberation. It wasn't freedom. 
And that's when he went out on his own and he, with his clear eyes, with mindfulness, with the light of attention, he started studying more intimately the flow of experience through the body and moods and thoughts and images and sounds all through the senses. He stopped going, trying to reach the end of the world. By going, he settled back into the moment and he, he started to examine what was going on here. And an interesting thing happened as he paid attention. He began to notice that superficially or conventionally, this body that was such a source of identity and seeming stability, when, it w- when he studied it more intimately, he saw that it, was, uh, that it was in a constant state of flux. And he, he kept sharpening his mindfulness, and this is what we're inviting you to do, you know, in the most relaxed and kind way, but we've invited you not to just glance at your experience when you have a sensation or a mood, but to be with it directly. I, I mentioned in a group, and I promised Kyra Jewell that I would speak about it tonight, that there, there are three aspects of mindfulness that we can sometimes miss when you hear the general Uh, description of mindfulness, the sense of being in a state of lucid awareness, comprehending what's here in real time. But the aspects of mindfulness is it's very direct. It's very, it's sometimes the expression used is face to face. And so it's direct and it's also, the second aspect is it's non-superficial. So you want to really feel that experience intimately. And I find it very interesting to know that when I'm experiencing something intimately and really uh, with it in an intimate way, I can't suffer about it in the same moment. Because almost implicit in that is a certain kind of interest and curiosity. And interest and curiosity don't exactly coexist with a moment of reactivity or suffering. And I'm talking about mental suffering. And then third aspect, so there's direct, there's non-superficial or intimate, and there's sustained. So I feel that experience intimately and notice what happens to it. So the Buddha did this Staying here, not constructing an identity of being the Buddha or being a meditator. I often tell people, stop being a Buddhist. Stop being a meditator. Stop even meditating. Just be mindful. And he did that and he stayed with his experience. And everything he stayed with, whether it was bodily sensations, moods, thoughts, images, were arising, changing. Nothing, nothing stayed the same from moment to moment. And he saw that not only 
was, was it arising and changing, but there was no place in there that you could find any kind of lasting stability. And maybe even more important, in noticing that everything was arising and passing, there was nowhere in there where he could find an abiding self. There was no, he could not find anything in this body that existed completely independently apart from everything that was influencing it. And it became obvious that this process itself of body was not, was not um, ownable. It was not me. It's not mine. Not controllable. And the more he noticed this, this uh, you could say this selfless, changing experience of, of the body and the moods and the thoughts, how it was happening all by itself, the less his mind tried to uh, hold on to making it me, making it mine, trying to make it a certain way. And the more his mind stopped grasping, the more it relaxed. And the more it relaxed, the more it began to just shine in its clarity. And he began to have a sense to feel a sense of joy, the joy of non-grasping, the joy of a mind that was easeful and balanced, even when this whole drama was going on in his mind and body. He touched into what Sharda pointed to last night, that well-being, the happiness of equanimity, that sometimes described as vipassana happiness, the happiness of that didn't seem unconditional happiness. Happiness that wasn't dependent on satisfying some kind of hunger or or getting anywhere. And as he relaxed into that that open, balanced awareness, he he had a flash of insight. He saw that there there was no self to be found here. And in that flash of insight, he realized, oh, the refuge that I had been searching for, the sense of home, was not there, was not then, but was none other than the nature of our minds, the very one through which you're perceiving. And at first he, he, was, he realized he'd come to the end of the world, the end of the search. And at first he didn't think anybody would be able to get it. But then he, he said, hmm, there, there are those. And he remembered some friends of his that were really sincere and who really... Long to, to find a sense of relief and that had become a really explicit um, conscious desire. 
not, he wasn't people, not just wandering aimlessly in, in samsara's vicious cycle. They were, they were actually uh, had a one-pointed interest in, in waking up. And he saw that there were, among those, there were those with just a little dust on their eyes. And if they were, if they were just pointed back to the simple reality of the present moment, back to themselves, that they could realize that same natural happiness of being awake. So all of you, you may not appreciate this, but every single moment that you just plant that seed of attention to the reality of the present moment and step out for that moment of the tangle of your of your um, usual identity views, sakaya ditti. A few things can happen. You will start getting used to what you are, not who you, we call it, we say who you are, but what your experience is that is even nearer than your story, that's more immediate and alive. And maybe if you had a sense, if you have a sense that this, this direct experience of yourself is uh, maybe more true than the version of yourself that's playing in your mind, or at least maybe the, the version that's playing in your mind will become less reliable to you. Does this language make sense? I guess I'll, I'll put it in the terms of James J. Audubon, who said it like this. He said, if there's a difference between the bird and what the field guidebook says, believe the bird. That version of ourselves that plays in our mind, the field guidebook, is, is often bound up, as I said, in solving problems. And it is a, it's a huge source because it's, it's a narrative, because it's a second-hand version of you, it is, it's not something that can be stabilized. That identity view changes depending on who you're with. You notice how when you are with people who, who love you, you feel good about yourself. When people who see you through a critical lens, how all of a sudden you can feel diminished. If somebody's giving you attention, you feel great. If they're ignoring you, I think I, I spoke last year about, about how I get lots of attention. Sharder reminded me, I talked about this. I get a lot of attention as, a, as somebody functioning in this role. And, and I, so I, I, as anybody would, 
part of the stream of consciousness is the identity of being teacher, being uh, somebody who loves to share the Dharma. That's part of my narrative, part of my story. Can't really be captured in, in my immediate experience. I'm, I'm not even reducible to that, but, but from time to time I incarnate as the, as the teacher <laughs> and I may feel a little inflated by, by um, being able to f- serve in this role. It's both humbling and you know, just gratifying. It's, it's so, such a privilege. So, but I can get a little puffed up, but then I go home. I go home. And the last thing my wife wants to hear is a Dharma teacher. <laughs> In fact, her, her, um, her favorite line for me is TMI, too much information. <laughs> See, but you've invited me to <laughs> share too much information <laughs> so I can get away with it. But then I go home and my, I have a 15, she'll be 15 next week, my 15-year-old daughter, Molly. And, you know, I'm feeling good about myself and I come home and she walks in the room and doesn't even notice me, (laughs) ignores me. I told the story last year that one morning she came down and I said, you know, it's, it's nice if you say good morning. And she says, Nobody does that anymore. <laughs> but I noticed that that's really part and parcel with this phase. You know, she, she was, you know, daddy, I, you know, love you, you know, hug. And, and now as a teenager, it's like, daddy who? She could care less. No, I, you know, I know that I hold some place in her, in her heart, but you'd never know it by, <laughs> by many of the interactions. She has been from the time she was a little girl, uh, my guru, you know, both for the difference in the way I feel depending on how she is with me. And you could think about, you know, different people in your life. So any identity that's, that's, that is, uh, can be affected by conditions is just not very secure. And so we're, we're constantly, uh, having to defend or protect or build up or, you know, fortify or fix uh, are these identities that uh, somebody that really, and it's really that version of us that doesn't exist. It's not something that can be reliable, that relied upon. But she's even more of a guru when it came to, to what I spoke of earlier whatever that experience is of yourself, just as you are, like how each person here in real time, the felt experience of each person here, you are, just as you are, whatever your flavor is that's sitting here, you're a unique individual. You could call it a unique expression of life formed by, by beginningless circumstances, the only possible way you could have formed by all the many causes and conditions that led you to be in this room at this moment could not be any other way. And that there is 
there is, you have emerged as a unique individual and you could not, nor should you be like anybody else. And I noticed that very early with my daughter Molly, how she was formed by, by circumstances out of her own control and how she emerged as this unique expression of life and you could feel that she has, as you have, she had what I called Molliness. Her name's Molly. It's kind of Molly's essence. But then I also noticed with Molly at age three or four, when she started to go to nursery school and be influenced by, by the conditions of uh, socialization and school, I noticed one day her standing in front of the mirror trying to straighten her little curlicues. She had curly hair. In that moment, I noticed she's now constructing an identity of somebody with lack, who should have straighter hair. She had given birth completely innocently to an idea, idea called, uh, called mana, or conceit, or otherwise known as the comparing mind. So the comparing mind, when we compare ourselves, and the reason I'm talking about this is because we don't get rid of our identity views, we don't get, a, get rid of these versions of ourselves, we notice them in our practice. We notice the comparing mind. that person that we create as lacking or who should be different, that's an imaginary version of us. The one that sits here on present, in present time, you can trust that. The one who's better than, equal to, or less than, which is really the maniacal uh, tendency of the comparing mind, that one... Is, uh, is an apparition. And yet, all of us, due to completely innocent circumstances, formed in time these kinds of um, impulses, these kind of these identities. And how we're seen by others, how we're treated, uh, what we see, what we hear, what we smell. But hopefully, in the span of our practice, we truly, with, with unshakable confidence, know for ourselves the difference between the bird or the unique expression of life that's you and the version of yourself playing in your mind. And you can believe the bird, not the field guide book. I guess I'll, I'll end with a little passage. Well, I have to say a few more things about, about how, <clears throat> how we can move from acting from those comparisons in our mind, those judgments, those ideas of ourselves, that version that says that I have to, that I have to um, reach the end of the rainbow by going, that, 
that my happiness is to be found through, uh, through becoming better, becoming different, becoming someone. How, to, how we can come out of the tangle, to untangle that tangle and notice that. We can recognize that as what the Buddha described as papancha. It's the proliferation of thoughts. Here, I'll read you the actual definition. It is the unbidden going of the mind away from the present to imagined experiences or objects, or a different, more traditional one, propensity of the worldling's imagination to erupt in an effusion of mental commentary that obscures the bare data of cognition. The bare data of cognition is your experience here in this moment. The version of you that plays in your mind is an effusion. It's based on the effusion of of the imagination, of mental commentary. So we don't get rid of it. We notice that. We notice the comparisons. We notice the judgments. We notice, and the comparisons, just for just a little bit of fill-in, you want to notice there's three kinds of comparisons. And you can start to recognize this in your practice. There's what's called atimana, which is the superiority view. It's when you feel inflated. And of course, it has a felt sense to it. And it has a narrative that you're better than. And we have a lot of superiority when it comes to political views and um, a lot of superiority when it comes to, um, to ethics and it, it, so many different things. We can, be, we can develop a, a kind of view of ourself of superiority. And then there's basic mana, which is the equality view, which is still measuring, still measuring. Am I, am I equal to this? Do I have the same? We do it around education. We do it around class. We do it around wealth. We do it around looks. We do it around so many different things. Putting ourselves above, atimana, mana, and amana, which is less than. A lot of less than. Both of them are, are just the view of ourself. And a view of yourself is not yourself. And the beauty is of practices, you can rest in your version of molliness and noticing, and hopefully with so much mercy and compassion, how tormenting this mind can be. But know that if you're noticing these thoughts of comparison, you're stepping out of that, that torment. As Francois Fenelon put it, you only know your cure, you, You only know your malady when the cure begins. If you can see that, you're already on the road to to freedom. So I'll leave you with a poem, a piece of a poem that's from my mind, I don't have it with me, from Rumi called Tending Two Shops. And the highlight of the poem is, he says, (laughs) now I'm forgetting it. Maybe I do have it with me. (laughs) 
it's worth waiting for. Found it. <laughs> live, live in the nowhere where you came from. Even though you have an address here, your name, your story, your identity. Live in the nowhere where you came from, even though you have an, an address here. You have eyes that see from that nowhere. And you have eyes that judge distances, how high, how low, at measuring mine. You own two shops, and you keep running back and forth. Try to notice the one that's a fearful trap, always getting smaller. Checkmate this, checkmate that. Keep open the one where you're not selling fish hooks anymore. You're the free swimming fish. So let's, for at least the next few minutes, live in the nowhere where we came from. May all beings recognize their natural freedom. May all beings notice and love the house that ego builds, the identity view. May all beings see the difference between the view of self and our immediate and direct experience. May all beings be free. Thank you for your long, enduring attention. Uh, it's, we have 25 minutes for walking. and Just walk. Know you're walking. Not going anywhere. Thank you. Oh yes, we are having a, uh, some chanting, some singing tonight at the nine o'clock sitting and a special, how would you describe it? A song about impermanence. A song about impermanence. So, and the sheets are outside the door. So come one, come all. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.